Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Wood Talk for woodworkers by woodworkers. Now here are three guys who are actually under the illusion that woodworking is cool. Mark, Matt, and Shannon. It's Wood Talk number 165 for January 13th, 2014. On today's show, we're talking about carbide-tipped bandsaw blades, when to use a palm router, avoiding sapwood when buying rough stock, solid wood for wooden gears, working with weathered wood, and making a large bridle joint without a table saw. But before we get to all that, let's hear a quick word from our sponsors. Today's show is brought to you by Festool. Not just tools, but an entire system of saws, sanders, dust extraction, and more. All designed to work together for cleaner, faster, and more precise results. See the latest at FestoolUSA.com. All right, well, it's an interesting recording day for us. It is Sunday morning, and you're probably going to hear this normal release time. I'll, I'll release it either Monday night or Tuesday just to keep on schedule, but we're recording on a Sunday morning. I've got my, my coffee here. You guys are approaching the afternoon, so I don't know if you're still drinking the coffee. I finally finished off the second pot, so I might be really, really anxious. <laughs> you're very Switched wired. over to tequila here. Oh, there you go. You need it for the show. <laughs> we got to get through it. It's only an hour, but uh, we'll get through somehow. All right, let's uh, move into what's on the bench. Um, let's see. Trying to think. There it is. I wrote it down. It wasn't really an eventful week for me, but uh, <laughs> I've been doing a lot of uh, in in the computer stuff. Um, but I have been uh, confronting that whole prized board question. Like you've got this this chunk of wood, just this beautiful, uh, in my case, piece of uh, live edge curly maple. It's been sitting here for years. I've been looking at it going, boy, I should really make something with that someday. But you really want to do the wood justice. So you stare at it and you stare at it. And a year goes by and two years go by. And the next thing you know, you have this project that can use it potentially and you're doubting yourself. And uh, that's kind of where I am right now. I've got these beautiful live edge curly maple uh, boards and I'm scared to use them. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay. 
we can sit down. We can we can hash this out. We can get over your fears. Probably irrational, just like all other fears. Well, it reminds me of like the some of the David Marks Woodworks episode where where he would open up his his wood storage and he would be like, "Today we're going to use this thing." And if I had that piece of wood, that would be like the holy grail of of my personal collection. Um, but he's got ten of those. Um, right, it's all relative. Yeah. So <laughs> so he pulls out this you know beautiful quilted maple board and and he knows it's the perfect stuff for for this particular project. Um, you know, but. But in my particular situation, I, you know, curly maple, especially it's an eight quarter live edge board. It's not something I come across very often uh, and I want to make sure I do it justice. So this particular project is the contemplation bench. There's no, you know, you're not retaining the, um, uh, the live edge and all that's going to, a lot of it's going to be carved away. And a lot of this curly maple is going to become curly maple dust and chips. And that makes me a little bit nervous because just you know how it is. You don't want to waste this stuff, um, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to suck it up and carve away a bunch of this material. I mean, think about if you wanted to make, I don't know, like a. you've seen some maybe Maloof rockers, for instance, uh, sculpted rockers that are made with these beautiful figured woods. Well, you know, a ton of waste had to go out in order to be left with what is that rocker. You right. know, it's just no and other way no to do it. There's no saying what that figured face looks like when you dig into it. That's true. An inch. Yeah, that's true. So, um, so it makes me nervous, but I, I feel good about it. I'm going to go, go into it. I'm going to, it's for a good cause. It's a good project that, you know, is going to be going to live forever on my website. And I think that that's what I consider a good cause. Other people will learn from it, uh, hopefully be inspired by it. And I think that's a, a pretty good use for it. But finally, some of these beautiful boards that sit around, sometimes you just, you just have to pull that bandaid off and, and build with it. Right. Absolutely. I'm, I'm foreseeing a video from Mark in the future where he starts on this and then there's like an outtake of him like crying in the corner, curled up in the fetal position. <laughs> no, sorry. I'm sorry. It feels like I should have the, the devil on one shoulder and the angel on the other <laughs> sort of moment, <laughs> deciding if I should use it, collecting all the little scrap pieces and, and trying to glue them back together and resuscitate them and <laughs> they won't come back to life. See, that, that sounds like an interesting video editing challenge. I think you should go for that. The little devil and the angel. That there you sounds go. like fun. <laughs> Get my chroma keying uh, skills back up. There All you right. go. Right on. Perfect. All right, Matt, how about you? Well, the big thing, very similar, not completely the same as what you're doing. I, I've been playing with some scraps. I definitely have that thing where I do have some of those pieces laying around there, you know, of various sizes and shapes. And then we all wrestle with this where it's like, I should just throw these out or do something like Shannon mentioned when I put up a post, <laughs> make s'mores with them, just get a nice little pile going, burn it and, you know, enjoy it while it lasts and get something good out of it. Now, what, what it kind is of- interesting to see how different woods burn differently yeah. oh yeah and, and the aroma that comes off of them you're like oh that one really did not help out the marshmallow right. the hallucinations <laughs> that follow yeah, uh, you know i've got to admit i'm a little bit of a firebug, like not in a uncontrolled fashion but ever since i was a kid we we would go camping and i would just love to see things burn and i know that sounds really disturbing i hope <laughs> i hope my wife's not listening uh, or or my son you know listening later on but um i really like to see stuff burn so that's why i love barbecuing i love smoking meat uh, so I'm curious, Matt, did you, do you have any domestic species or anything that would be useful in, in, for like cooking applications? Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, we have, uh, well, we have some oak, we have some cherry. I mean, I don't know how often you'd want to use ones like those. Actually, I should take it back. The oak would be pretty decent. Oh yeah. Uh, but you know, other than that, I mean, those are maple, cherry, oak are, are my big ones. And I have used those. In fact, uh, we had a, a nice little fire over new year's Eve. We had all, some friends over and we dug a pile dug out the snow around the fire pit and had a little bit of a fire going on. And there was like one of those, 
I think my family likes me to use my scraps for stuff like that. Uh, not only for the aroma, obviously, but also because they're quick and we have ADD. So it's like fire. All right, everybody goes inside. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so thankfully, that really kiln dried, dried stuff burns really quickly, and we oh, don't man. have to sit out there for a long time going, man, I wish this fire would just die. I yeah. want to go inside. It's freezing out here. That stuff goes up really, really fast. Yeah. And so I thought about using it, like soaking it a little bit. And maybe I do have like a little smoker, which I, you know, was dipping my toes into the whole smoking thing uh, this summer. And I did like something like where I had like, I think it was some cherry and I was soaking it so that it was nice and, you know, and it wasn't going to burn off too fast and give some really good smoke from it and stuff. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly my wife got really, it was like impatient. It was like, just put it on the damn gas grill so we can eat on time. (laughs) (laughs) You know, thinking of how fast this wood goes up actually reminded me uh, in terms of safety every time i see how fast kiln dried wood burns it makes you realize like how fast a wayward spark or something just a terrible thing in your shop or or like you know they talk about the rags leaving the oily rags around um if that wood ever caught it would just be like the whole thing would just go i mean so oh yeah fire safety you know usually when you start a fire in the fireplace you've got like you know maybe newspaper or some sort of kindling to start the fire no that's not necessary (laughs) no yeah no i had like some uh eight quarter maple that it it scraps from some of the stuff i've been working on recently for aiden's bed and you know they're just pieces that there's i know for a fact i'm not ever going to use these ones so Mm -hmm. let's just put them in the fireplace and get them done and over with and watching those it's just like yeah it's just gone i'm like (laughs) did i put something on that what how did that go so fast yeah it's crazy all right well i guess enough fire talk maybe Maybe that's another podcast idea for say, us. Weren't you saying something before we derailed your conversation? Matt? <laughs> Not, actually, I was this going somewhere, Matt. <laughs> but anyway, so some of those scraps, I did find a few ones that I, I've, I was asking people, what are some of the things that they use? And this is a, a regular kind of a perennial, perennial question that comes up. What do you do with your scraps? And mm-hmm. I was taking some small ones that I literally found behind the bench, like, oh, how the hell did these get back here? Yeah. And I was using them on a small little uh, like $1 bottle opener and just kind of going from there. And it's funny thing is I showed a picture to some friends and they're like, oh my God, we want those. I'm like, really? Um, $50. $29.99. You can get the prototypes. <laughs> nice. I saw a picture of that. It looked really good. And that's a cool thing that you can do. Maybe you've got like an old knife handle that broke or something or just these little kitchen utensils to be able to replace those and make them look really good. Make them look brand new is, is kind of one of those cool things about being a woodworker. Exactly. It was just some beautiful rosewood. Like I said, it, it's almost like one of those with a species like that and with as pretty as it is, it's so hard to let something like that go. Even if it's only like one inch by one inch, you know, you're just like, well, I'm sure I could come up with something like an accent piece or yeah. something like that. Sure. But yeah, and, and then to customize something that's just so completely boring, it's just, it's, it's, it's the plight of the woodworker. That it is. That it is. Very nice. Very nice. Sweet. How about you, Shannon? Now, obviously, you have had to have something going on recently. How could you not? <laughs> you must. I don't know. You're Shannon. You're always doing something, right? Yes. I'm not, I'm not sure where that's oh, coming from. How could I? I don't not? know. Oh, because well, oh, I, I thought it said zero. It's actually Zen, isn't it? Oh, I, yes. I the coffee didn't kick in hard <laughs> enough this morning. I I had a very Zen shop moment uh, over the last couple of days. <clears throat> He knows woodworkers were always talking about our shops and improving our shops and reorganizing our shops. And I certainly have a fair amount of that that needs to happen. But the last couple of days, I just realized this this morning. It was like, man, like everything works. You know, I'm working on my, my lathe and I need to go over and do some carving on this piece. And I've got a separate bench for that. And everything is set up where it needs to be set up. And I'm 
sawing off a piece with my saw and it's like, you know, the saw's a little dull. I turn around like 180 degrees and there's my saw vise and mm-hmm. I sharpen my saw and I go back to work. And it was just one of those moments where you kind of step back and go, this is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> like everything is kind of where it's supposed to be. Um, I have the tools that I need. Um, I, I have the, I think the skills to, to, you know, at least use them to some respect and, you know, just, just being self-sufficient in your wood shop, you mm-hmm. know, the sharpening, the saw thing was really cool. I used to be really terrified of saw sharpening and, you know, it's just like five minute, take out five minutes, resharpen my saw. Now it's working great. And it was just one of those things like, yeah, you know, and I was making mistakes. <laughs> it's not like everything, the joinery and everything was coming out perfectly. I tore up a piece on my lathe and I had to glue it back on with CA glue. But while that was kind of curing, I went over to the bench and I did something else. And it was just, it was just one of those cool moments. I guess you'd call that being kind of in flow or whatever. But it was just nice to see that, you know, I've achieved a certain, uh, a certain, I don't know, status in my shop where things seem to be working well. It was just, it was very cool. So you mean to tell me that's possible? Yeah, I, I think you're lying. <laughs> I think people go for like entire careers and never quite get to that point. Um, but well, and, and you know, and I say this, and then I have every intention in February of you know basically emptying the shop, tearing it up, putting in floor, putting in walls. So I'm liable to screw up all that zen. And, <laughs> yeah, you know, just just by bringing in new material, I'll throw off the karmic balance. Nice. Well, in that case, you should enjoy it right now, so that in the middle of that, you can be like, oh, I remember when. <laughs> it was all in balance. That was just two months before ago. I screwed it up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've had moments like that in the past, but uh, in this new shop, in spite of how great the new shop is, not having time to really finish it off, those little finishing touches, putting the right thing exactly where it needs to be, getting the sharpening stuff right where it needs to be, just so that everything flows, um, still have not gotten to that point. So I got I, I really need to schedule some time because I'm, I'm a little jealous. I want some Zen as well. <laughs> well, I think the, I think the key difference is, is, you know, when you go from like one workstation to another, it's a five minute walk. Yeah. So I take the trolley actually. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so it's really easy for things to do with a hand. You know, Damn, that driver is feet. late. He's usually here on time. Oh man, I really got to get to the table saw. Jeez. Come on, man. I'm so not going to scooter that like the guys at uh, uh, one of the factory warehouses <laughs> I was at recently. They had scooters to go from one end to the other. Oh, nice. I'm just going to wear roller skates and, and like a little poodle skirt or something. I see a new podcast coming. <laughs> there you go. All right, let's I'd move like in. to see a Wood Whisperer branded Segway in a Wood Whisperer store. Mm, that'd be nice. How yeah, do those I'll things, do they tolerate wood dust? That'd be good. <laughs> All right, let's move into what's new. Got a couple links to share with you. This one is one that I found in the forum. Chris with a K posted this, and it's a YouTube video showing a gentleman in a African refugee camp making guitars. It's one of those videos that every time I think, like this conversation about having those Zen shop moments, um, as people like, worry like you know just asking questions oh should this go here should that go here it just is one of those things that make you want to tell yourself to shut up (laughs) right Right? here's a dude working you know he's basically got four walls that's about all you could say for it and there's dirt you know the dirt floor um and he's got some old pieces of wood on some makeshift supports and he's building a guitar of all things you know not not like light duty woodworking here um so really inspirational in terms of, of watching what someone can do when, when determined with the most basic of tools. Uh, so you definitely got to go check it out. It's uh, it's worth a watch and it will make you feel bad about complaining, uh, about your own shop situation. No, I will never feel bad about complaining because nobody has <laughs> the burden I carry. Right. <laughs> I believe that. Um, all right. You're up, man. Okay. 
Hey, well, this next link comes in from David, and he sent us a, a link over to uh, it's a graffiti inspired coffee table by uh, Vans the Omega, I believe is the uh, the the name of the designer. It's over at Design Milk, and I don't know if you had a chance to check this out yet, uh, but this is kind of neat. It reminds me of the Huxtable family sweaters to be quite honest with you <laughs> it the does. colors on these in fact it was funny because earlier well at the end of last year of 2013 uh, uh my wife and i got together with our good friends and we decided to have a huxtable family reunion and we all wore our huxtable family uh sweaters which it turned out only one of us actually had one the rest of us just came uh dressed as one of the members of the huxtable family and so we we really enjoyed that but uh i yeah, if you take a look at this, the one thing this reminds me of, and I think when David sent this in, I might have sent a, a comment back saying, you know, it reminds me of, anybody remember when you used to take the tiles and you'd break them up and then you'd cement them to the table and you called it art? Well, that's what it <laughs> kind of reminds me of, but it looks much better. Nice. <laughs> it is crazy. Um, would you want something that, like that in your house? Uh, no, it definitely clashes no. too much with my own clothing. <laughs> with your sweater. Yeah, it's with my sweater. So I don't need that much. My, if, I, if I came out and saw that in my living room, my eyes would just go like, all wonky on me. <laughs> hey, nice. <laughs> Where do I put my drink? Where do I put my drink? Put your drink. Okay, Matt, you can only put it on black. Sam, you can only put it on white. Uh, kids, you can put yours on green or yellow, but never on red. All right. Uh, let's see. We got another link here. This one, I got this from Pee Wee Herman on Facebook. Oh, which, uh, cool. I mean, you should follow Pee Wee Herman. It's actually pretty entertaining. Why wouldn't you follow him? Because you might find something as cool as this, which is a amazing German design cat climbing furniture. Yes. I, I saw this. I showed this immediately to the family, and we decided that for our elderly cat, we're getting this for him. Just in case he falls off, then we can be like, oops. Nope. Look what happened. <laughs> oh my God. Look what happened. Poor Hamlet. Oh, um, sorry about that, kitty. All right. So, yeah, this is really kind of cool and i'm not a cat person but if i had a cat this would be something that would be fun to make for them i mean this this is talking about like dedicating your entire living room uh space anywhere above like six feet to cat i don't know it's like there's little sacks for them to lay in there's little trails for them to (laughs) climb all over the place i mean this is a cat's dream it's Um, like the cat version of the hamster habit trail yeah totally totally um now the thing is after you make this you go through all this trouble to build this thing for your cat while you're sleeping, that cat will steal your breath and kill you. So <laughs> I personally don't think it's worth it. But if that's something you want to do for your cats, that's great. <laughs> well, if you build it big enough and they have plenty to do in the hours when they might be coming into your room, they'll still be trying to figure out how to get off. <laughs> yeah, how do trail. I get down from this thing? <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, but so it is. Actually, it is it's Mateo tactic. is at an age now where I think he, you should do this for him. <laughs> you know what? He is turning into quite a climber. So giving him something to do. Uh, would be good, although we'd have to have a safety net at the bottom. I could see just, that. Like, just you, consider it training for like Ninja Warrior. There you go. As he gets older, you know, he <laughs> wins some bucks. Yeah, so pretty awesome stuff. We'll, we'll put the link in the show notes for you to check that out. But it's uh, pretty interesting. And you know what? If, even if you don't do something on this scale, if you really do love your cat and you got some room to do something, you could do like a small version of this and give them some really good, like high level things to climb on um, so they're not on your own furniture all the time. Pretty Absolutely. cool stuff. Uh oh. All right, let's move into kickback. No poll of the week. We're recording early here, so Tom hasn't sent me the poll of the week. It doesn't exist yet. 
let's get into the kickback then. So the first one here is from Kenji. Uh, he has a kickback concerning our discussion on riving knives. I believe we had a, a question in the last show about uh, when to use a riving knife, when it's safe to take it off. He says, riving knives come in different shapes and sizes. My Steel City table saw came with several riving knives. For non-through cuts, you could still keep the riving knife attached as long as the height of the riving knife does not go above the height of the blade. Some knives curl over the top of the blade and some just ride part of the way up. Uh, just one, <clears throat> just use the one that curls part of the way up the back. As long as that riving knife can ride within the saw curve, you should be good to go. Of course, only you can determine if you feel that it's a safe cut. Something I started doing about six months ago was also switching to using a handsaw whenever certain cuts feel uh, make me a little bit too nervous on a table saw or miter saw. When doing cuts on small pieces of wood, I just whip out my bench hook and go to town. Allows me to make a cut without needing to change my pants after. Um, you know, Matt, you're probably the, the person with the newest table saw. Did your saw stop come with multiple splitters or arriving knives yeah it did actually it came with uh various thicknesses so that if you did have say a thin curve blade uh there is a splitter specifically or arriving knife uh specifically for that hmm. uh and I, I know exactly what he's talking about here with the steel city one i did see this where they have it kind of reminds me of like a bevel gauge almost like you loosen it up and you can raise or lower the arriving knife oh, to nice. match the height of the uh, of the blade itself which i thought was a neat feature um, smart yeah yeah definitely i mean it totally takes advantage of that because i know a long time ago we talked about the little splitters that you can get from uh, a micro jig the ones that you can add on to your uh, zero clearance insert or something and it was a question about could you use that for say a dado blade or something mm -hmm. and right. i was trying to think i'm like could you do that with these riving knives that they had i don't i don't know if you could i don't know if i'd feel comfortable with one or not but it's definitely neat to think that you could have it just there so that you could do say a rabbit or a dado or something like that with your, your standard blade. Yeah. If the adjustment mechanism is easy enough to do and you can lower it enough. Cause a lot of times that uh, dado blade is not the same diameter as your standard right. blade. So you've got to, you've got to bring it in pretty, uh, a pretty substantial amount to get it to be at the level of the blade uh, with a dado. But if you could, that'd be nice as long as it yeah. doesn't like take 20 minutes to, <laughs> to you know, <laughs> exactly. set up and turn back. You know what I've always wondered with these things though, is, in my experience, the more kind of options or not so much more difficulty, but do you actually use these different riving knives? You know, right. um, we have a tendency when it comes to safety gear to be like, yeah, you want it out of sight, out of mind. Maybe you feel good that it's there, but I don't want to mess with it. You know, you set it up once and, and never move on. Like like those micro jig, those little micro splitters I used to have on my saw, you mm -hmm. could change, flip them around so that they applied more pressure one side or the other. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I never did it. You know, I never did it. I'd, I'd like after the cut, I'd be like, oh, yeah, I could have done that, you know, but I, I just never adjusted it because I wanted to set up my splitter and not have to deal with it anymore. And I just wonder, you know, you, your saw comes with four different riving knives and this is for this and this one's for this type of cut. And, you know, do you even think about that? Maybe, maybe we should. I don't know. But it just seems to me the more complexity you add to the safety gear, yeah, totally. the less it's going to get used. Well, and I don't know that it's even really necessary to have a bunch of different ones. Of course, thin curve and thick, you know, standard curve, fine. But generally right. you pick one and then you're good. Uh, right. You don't usually have to go back to one or the other. Um, if you have a blade guard mechanism built in, you're going to have a, a splitter that rises above the blade because that's that's how the whole thing latches on. So that's when you right. expect to say, oh, yes, I need to remove that for through cuts or um, uh, dado cuts and things like that. Um, if you are only going to put in one, 
I would just say the lowest profile you can, the one that doesn't go above the blade height would be the ideal one to keep on your saw. That's what I've got. Um, and I decided that it's not worth it to use the uh, guard that comes with the saw. I just use the low profile riving knife and an aftermarket guard that goes on top of that. Now that to me is exactly what you're saying, Shannon. It's a setup that I have to tinker with the absolute least, but I still right. get, you know, as much safety benefit as I would if I'm, you know, we're switching all these different riving knives. Um, so I don't really see the need for a riving knife that comes up and over the blade. I guess maybe it's a little bit safer, but right. if it's going to cause you to just say, ah, it's not worth putting it on in the first place because I've got all these choices. Um, you know, you're better off with something rather than nothing. And the thing, the thing that gets used the most on all these different, uh, different types of cuts, the one that's more applicable to different things is probably the one you're going to use the most anyway. So, right. Hmm. Interesting that they offer that many though. Not many, I, hmm. I don't believe many companies even do that. Um, right. I yeah, cause the, the saw stop one, I, if I <clears throat> see, I don't use them. So I just kind of threw them. I didn't throw them away. I set them aside, which is practically <laughs> throwing them away. Yeah. <laughs> but there was like, uh, there was, yeah, three options if I remember huh. correctly. Very cool. And it, wow. you're looking at those and it's like, well, which one do I want? Now I got to compare my blade size, the thickness to, oh, what the hell? This one looks good. <laughs> good enough. Good <laughs> enough. <laughs> Works for me. All right. Um, well, actually, before we leave that question, I want to say um, congratulations to Kenji. He just had a little boy in December. Mm. So oh, yeah. Congratulations. For, for frequent listeners of the show who wonder, what happened to Kenji and his, you know, weekly emails and kickbacks? That's what happened. He, he was busy giving birth. sleeping. Nice. That happens. Yeah. Uh, let's see. This is a kickback from Rob. He said there was a recommendation to a listener not to build a workbench right off. And I think I understand where he's coming from. I do, however, understand the comment about the torsion box vibration and completely agree that it's unacceptable with the chisel in hand. As far as the workbench, I think some middle ground would be to build a scaled-down version of a workbench that may not be as large or of the best materials. I'm suggesting that some 2x4s would suffice, laminated into a work surface, and legs too. Um, then he could see uh, what it affords in the way of work area, stability, etc., for example, my bench is, is about an inch too tall or I'm too short. Uh, there really isn't a reasonable way to shorten it. Had I started with a smaller, cheaper bench, I might not have overlooked it when I built mine. I, I think this is a, a valid comment. We tend to um, kind of go from one extreme to another. And sometimes when we, especially when we're like telling somebody they're wrong, <laughs> you're wrong. We never do that. Um, you know, there's always gray area. And and I've had this conversation many, many times uh, the recommendation not to build a workbench is not so much not to build it, but not to build like the ultimate you know, workbench. The, yeah. You know, the end all be all workbench. Um, because, you know, especially with handwork, it is kind of hard with nothing. Um, you can take a door and put it on saw horses and that will work just fine. You'll also learn a lot about, you know, wow, I need this to be heavier. I need the, the, the height to change or whatever. Yeah. There's absolutely nothing wrong with going and spending, you know, 20, 30, whatever, $50 on two by construction material, nailing or screwing something together and working on it from there. Um, that really is the logical way to go. So, um, I don't know if we made that. I, I'm trying to remember our conversation. We, we did I think, just kind of say, no, this is not the way to go. Well, no, I think the problem was it, it came across, it probably came across like, don't build a workbench early on when the, what you're really right. saying is don't build the ultimate workbench early on, get something that just gets the job done. So you can learn more about your woodworking, what you need, all that stuff. Um, yes. you know, incidentally at a, at a curiosity, do either or both of you have what you would consider your final workbench at this point? Yes. <laughs> I mean, uh, no, 
<laughs> because Matt, I know Absolutely. you, Matt, you recently made a change to your workbench and like upgraded the, the top on it or something like that. But, um, you still envision yourself in the future making what you would consider like your final workbench. Yeah, it's actually, it's, it's in the plans right now. I've, I have the material, uh, uh, for what will be my next version of my possible end all bench. You hope you hope. <laughs> right. So, but yeah, I have the material and because the top I have on there right now, it was replaced a few years ago, but it needs to be replaced again. Actually, the mm-hmm. whole bench just needs to be redone. It doesn't work for the type of woodworking I do. Yeah. Um, it was kind of a, an all around. So yeah. It, it, and again, even when I do build it, I, I have the plans all set for it. And once I get going, hopefully I'm going to start on it by spring. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it will be a bench that will easily be able to be adapted as I go forward. Yeah, um, I, yeah. I have no plans of making it like the supreme all being, and this is the only way it's going to go kind of a bench at the moment. Okay. Uh, Shannon, did you have iterations of that bench or like what, how many versions of a workbench did you have prior to making the one you use now? Uh, let's see. Um, three, I think. Okay. Yeah. And then, well, I mean, I guess you could include the, the, base cabinet countertops as a bench too because i actually put in one of those craig surface clamps into it mm, yeah. uh, a while back so i guess that would be four but everything prior to my rubo was was cobbled together screws and nails you know home depot construction lumber yeah um just thrown together i didn't even go so far as to laminate a top um that was just too much work it was basically plywood um you know one of them had hardboard over top the whole idea that you could like switch out the hardboard as it gets too banged up right and put a new one on so that that doesn't seem to work as well in reality as it does in theory does it (laughs) but you know frankly and that's one of the things to make this this conversation even more confusing um if you do want to build you know a really nice workbench or whatever um the one thing i'll say about I almost said the modern designs, the popular designs of Rubo and Nicholson, they really are kind of blank slates. So you, you really can't go too wrong if you were to build that framework, that mm-hmm. Rubo style framework, because it's so flexible. You can add stuff on and take stuff off without too much of a problem. Um, it can be super heavy, super stable. Um, it, it just, you know, it takes a fair amount of lumber and takes some time to put it together. And it's just one of those things where, I think it's better to to get onto the woodworking and figure out the shortcomings of the bench while you're working at it yeah. rather than spend a bunch of time building something. Um, but that's the thing with, with my Rubo the way it is now, I really don't see anything to change. Um, the only possible thing I could change, and this is because it's all come out after my bench, is adding that, um, uh, what does Benchcraft call it? The St. Peter's Cross thing, the adjustment mechanism on mm-hmm. the um, leg vise. Right, mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's such a minor thing because so I bend over and move the pen. It's not really that big of a deal. Um, yeah, yeah. Lately, I've been working with a lot of different thicknesses of stock. So I've been having to move that pen a lot more. Mm-hmm. And I found myself like, uh, I'm not going to put it in the leg vise. I'll just whack it onto the, you know, the hold fast onto the bench and not actually clamping because I didn't want to bend over and move the pen. <laughs> um, you know, and that can be a little annoying when like every single piece you've got to change that because one piece is four quarter, one's 12 quarter, one's eight quarter. Um, and that gets to be a little annoying. Um, but that would be kind of some major surgery at that point to have to hollow out large portions of my bench legs to do that. So I'm a little hesitant. Well, you know what I recommend you do? There's this video on YouTube of this guy in Africa 
<laughs> we should check that out. Do you have a link in the show notes? For that? <laughs> yeah, I do. I'll send that to you. Um, <laughs> you know, one thing I always think about is anytime that the whole, the whole bench thing comes up is it always seems like, and maybe it's just me falling into that whole trap of, oh, if they say this is what it has to be, then that must be the ultimate go-to. Has you ever noticed like every single workbench article or or plan is always like the ultimate workbench the <laughs> be all workbench the you'll never have to build another workbench well that plan. sells more magazines and, it, it and more does plans. i would like you know maybe it's just me being kind of just you know the the regular vanilla kind of guy just like i just want a plan that says it's a nice workbench oh, just another bench how about that just, yeah, <laughs> just another bench that's just uh, another bench. that's the schwarz's next book it's gonna be yeah. called just another bench just a bench to maybe get you started to possibly go <laughs> on to your ultimate well you know i i actually built two benches prior to the the split top rubo the first one was uh shannon like you had mentioned a laminated plywood top which actually i think is a great way to start because it's mm. a easy cheap way to get a nice dense thick top that will take a beating uh, and I wrapped it around the outside with solid wood, built a little cabinet base, and it you know put a little metal vise on there, and it really got the job done. But then I wanted the whole real workbench experience, so I built a trestle base uh, workbench inspired from David David Mark's design on woodworks. The problem was that uh, you know, and this is something that I, I didn't realize at the time, is how much more mass he has in his base whether it's because of the species or just the, the sheer thickness of the, the material um, that makes his bench stable and mine not. So yeah, I just did not have enough weight on the base. And that was the thing that drove me the nuts the most about uh, my, my old design. Uh, but then the third workbench build was the Rubo. And I don't think I'll be building a bench again ever. Um, but the thing is, I think what in retrospect, it's very easy for us to say, don't, don't do this, but you know, there's a point early on when you watch other people doing great yeah. work on really nice workbenches, you just want to do it. So the good thing is I didn't really have as many resources available to me at the time that you guys have available to you today. So that even if you did sort of blindly go into the world of workbench building, if you look at the right resources, you will end up with that blank slate that Shannon's talking about, and you won't necessarily have something that you'll regret later you'll have something you could build on later and expand um so i think it's you're in a better situation um these days than when when, than when we were kids right yeah well and i know that (laughs) i tend to i tend to forget um you know i've been living with my rubo now for three years maybe four years and i i I just do stuff you know just not an issue anymore think about it Mm -hmm. um and I get a lot of emails like well what I don't have that leg vice or I I don't have hold fast or anything like that and and I'm like, oh wow, you know, I have to, I have to kind of rethink what I do. I mean, to me, that's the sign of an outstanding workbench is you don't even notice it anymore. Yeah. Um, it just is a tool that does its job. Um, so yeah, for, forgive me if I tend to forget when I'm so quick to say, oh, you don't need this. Here I am standing in front of my, you know, 500 pound rubo. It's really easy for me to say that. Right. <laughs> All right, uh, let's move on to our emails. Got one here from Todd. He said, I had to replace my bandsaw motor this weekend and upgraded to a two-horsepower motor. Now I can chew up some wood with not-so-sharp blades. I'm looking at getting some new um, 105-inch blades. My question is this. Does a carbide-tipped blade last five to six times longer than a non-carbide blade? I was looking at some Timberwolf blades between 16 and 25 bucks versus carbide at 65 plus. Also, I know I can sharpen a non-carbide blade easier than carbide. So what are, if any, the advantages of a carbide blade? Uh, you know, I don't have an extensive amount of experience with carbide blades, but I can tell you, the, you know, what, what I've experienced with my uh, Laguna Resaw King 
Uh, the Resol King is insane, and it's a massive blade with nice chunky teeth that, at least when, when you first get it and it's nice and sharp, that thing produces like table saw quality cuts uh, on the bandsaw, like that washboard thing that you tend to get on just about any other uh, blade just doesn't exist with the Resol King. It's It's kind of amazing. So the quality level right off the bat, I found to be better with that particular blade. Um, even better than, than what I would normally get from like a wood slicer, uh, or even, uh, what does he mention there to do was the brand Timberwolf. Cause I, I used Timberwolf. to use Timberwolf as well. Um, so the thing is it, it did stay sharper for longer. Um, I've gone while well, I was in my old shop, uh, back at the old house when I got that blade and I have not sharpened it since then. Now it, it is in need of sharpening right now. That's one of the things I need to do for shop maintenance. Um, I can, they, they do take the blades back for sharpening. I'm not going to do it myself, but they, uh, it's lasted this long and you guys, most of you watch the show, you know that I use some pretty nasty woods, um, and, and cut them down with that blade. So it has really served me well. I don't know that I could say it lasts six to five times longer. It's kind of hard to, to estimate that for myself, but it definitely lasted longer than any other non-carbide tip blade that I've had. And given the fact that I work with a lot of dense exotics, that carbide tip blade has really, really proven useful for me. So in my opinion, for the big, the big saw in my shop that does most of the hogging work to just like break down large eight quarter stock and things like that. And even for resawing uh, veneer and whatnot, that uh, the carbide tip blade for me is a good choice. Um, on my, uh, what is it? The 14 inch saw, I tend to use the less expensive blades like the, the wood slicers. Um, those I think work perfectly fine. They last a, a very long time on there as well. Probably not as long as a, a carbide version would, but they're super sharp and they're not that expensive. So I could replace them when, when the time comes. I think if we look at our usage at the lumber yard, it's pretty safe to say that five to six times longer is pretty accurate okay. for a carbide blade. It might even be as much as 10 times. Wow. Um, yeah, our, our resaw is a carbide tipped, you know, monster mm-hmm. and we're running, you know, thousands and thousands of, of resaws daily, you know, through there, thousands and thousands of board feet. Sure. Resawing. Sure. Um, and you know, the thing lasts a long time really long time. Yeah. So, which is good because it costs lots and lots and lots of dollars to resharpen it. So. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing when you're, of course, a, a mill, I mean, you guys are, are, have so much, so many, you know, linear feet going through these things. Um, I, I'm somewhere between the hobbyist shop and a pro shop in, in terms of my usage. So I am using it quite a bit, several days a week that thing is getting used. And if mine can last like on the scale of years before sharpening. Um, if you have a standard hobbyist shop, you could see why your, your standard wood slicer is usually good enough. And, and Timberwolf is usually good enough in the average, uh, weekend warrior hobbyist shop because you just aren't using it as much. Exactly. I have a carbide tipped, uh, bandsaw blade and I think I've had it now for five years. Uh, and wow. I've used it off and on and it's still just as sharp as the day it came out. In fact, all the maple I've been cutting recently for Aiden's uh, platform bed, mm-hmm. I've been using the carbide blade because it just cuts so amazingly well through that maple. And yeah, I, I don't think I'll have to worry about sharpening it for even after I finish the project, probably for a few more years. <laughs> cool. Good deal. Sweet. All right. Well, hey, well, this next question came in from Chris and I, I feel a little... I feel like I should answer this question because I kind of have a little experience with it. Yeah, so you do. <laughs> Chris's question says, currently I only have a small palm router, and I would like to know if there is any rule of thumb that lets you know when a particular job is too big for it. Do you just give it a try and watch for smoke? 
It does a great job on rounding over edges and small grooves, but would flush routing three-eighths inch walnut burn it out? Uh, so, first of all, when it comes to rule of thumb, my suggestion is to keep it out of your thumb. Uh, I have personal experience with that. Uh, Matt, Matt's uh, theory is if you see blood, you've gone too far. Exactly. Yes. He, yeah. He yeah. Took yeah. The palm router thing too literally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thankfully, it was just the side of the palm and not the actual palm itself. Uh, but th- the way I see it is, I know these are really neat routers. They definitely can handle small jobs, and I think oftentimes for a lot of woodworkers, uh, maybe the, the the type of small shop that you have or the, the limited work that you're doing with a router, this might be very very appealing because even price wise, uh, they're they're pretty decent. There's a limitation though because they're all I think quarter inch collet. I don't I can't I don't think I've ever seen one that has a half inch. I might be completely wrong on that, but yeah, that, that should also kind of be. I don't a, think that exists. Yeah, I don't think they. I, I was in fact I was just trying to look to see if any of them might expect Festool to have like a half inch collet mini palm. No, they've uh, got router. the they've got what is it the MF no something seven hundred router and it's basically the what is it the eight millimeter metric I believe okay. and then the quarter inch collet. So you, you they're usually just not powerful to even think about putting a half inch uh, bit in there. Right. And when they, actually, the thing is, they're also called trim routers, which should kind of give you an oftentimes a laminate trim router. So that should kind of help you get a picture of what it was originally intended for, which is simply doing light trim work. Mm-hmm. So the, the my suggestion with this is if you really think that you want to start bumping it up to bigger projects, say like that three-eighths inch walnut, although I think you probably could get away with it depending on how much you're going to you know flush off of that, say with a, uh, a trim flushing bit or whatever you would call that. I can't think of it the morning. Damn it, this coffee. Just the other way around, that's all. Okay, the flush trimming bit. There you go. <laughs> so this is my advice, Chris, is uh, if you are planning on doing some bigger work with it, you're going to want a bigger router. And it's not so much that you're going to burn out the motor. It comes down purely to the safety of it. Anytime that I'm working with the uh, little trim routers, I try to keep the diameter of the router bit as narrow as possible. In fact, uh, when it comes down to it, like say a chamfer bit, a roundover bit, or that flush trimming bit is typically, that's about all I'm going to use it for. Mm -hmm. I try to avoid doing any type of groove or dado work with it simply because one, it doesn't have the heft. And as I'm going through the material, I like the, the, the router to be heavy enough that I can rely on that also, along with the control from my hands, that it's not going to get away from me. Say it hits a little tricky grain or something, uh, it's not going to go uh, you know, out, of, out of control. So hmm. really when it comes down to it, um, yeah, don't treat your palm router like a traditional full-sized router. Good advice. Or a nail trimmer. Or a nail <laughs> trimmer, yes. Yeah, definitely not the nail trimmer. Although I have had calluses on my feet where I think they could help. Hmm. I'm going to throw I up think, now. So I, I think back. that's where we need some of Mark's like Arbor Tech type tools. <laughs> yeah, maybe that, the, yeah, the remind Lancelot. Me that, uh, that, yeah, the Lancelot. That's the one I was thinking <laughs> Reminds of. me of that scene in Dumb and Dumber when they get their makeovers. Exactly. They take the grinder to their toenails. Uh, all right, Shannon, you're up. All right, this comes from Pug. He says, I always buy rough stock and melt myself. And I went to the lumber yard yesterday for walnut. And I chose what I thought were three nice dark boards, about 18 board feet. I got home and jointed one face. Imagine my surprise when all when I got all sapwood. Is there a way to tell if rough cut walnut is going to be heartwood or sapwood before I get home? I paid $80 for my lumber, and I would have really liked to be able to use it the way I intended. Creamy sapwood can be nice, but I really wanted the darker walnut. Almost all the walnut I bought in the past has been beautifully dark. Did I get unlucky this time, or was I really lucky all my previous times? Um, 
Well, first of all, if you're if you're finding you know large boards that are all heartwood, then yes, you're very lucky because walnut just does not grow that way. Walnut is a is a sickly tree that has lots of defects and a fair amount of of other stuff creeping into it. However, one of the things when I started working at the lumber yard that I really struggled with is actually identifying the various species, and I I went into that job with a pretty good understanding of how to do that, how to identify different species. Because of the fact that lumber yards are dirty places, they get dirty, lots of dust, dirty very dirty. dirty. Um, in our case, we have um, we have gravel, and you know the forklifts and the trucks just pulverize that stuff, and it turns it into this like you know moon dust quality, flowery gray powder, mm. and it gets on everything. And you know there are a few lumber yards I know of that are completely paved, but that actually can be. Um, it's a maintenance nightmare because the heavy duty of the forklifts and things like that destroy pavement. Also, most of the times lumber yards are near um, railroad tracks and things like that. And there are drainage requirements by the city and the ordinances that require you can't put down an impermeable surface. So the point of that is, is there's always going to be dust in the air at these lumber yards. So you're looking at a piece of maple and it's nice, dark brown, chocolatey looking walnut because there's so much dirt on it. So it, it's it's hard to to really look at a board and, and know exactly what it is right off the bat. This is one of those things where having a nice like stiff bristled brush with you when you go to the yard can be really useful uh, to kind of brush some of that gunk away. But without fail, I find the best way to do this is to look at the end grain. Mm-hmm. Um, it will be um, first of all the dust isn't going to settle on the end grain as much. Uh, you know if the if the board is is stored uh, horizontally, obviously, you know, doesn't stick there as much. There, you will find that some of the ends are painted, but generally there um, is at least one end that's not painted. Um, If both ends are painted, then this obviously doesn't work, (laughs) but you just have to clean off some of that dust and look. Walnut is one of those instances where it's such a dramatic uh, difference between sapwood and heartwood that with brushing off some of that dust, you ought to be able to tell um, what I'm thinking in your particular instance is you may have had those couple of boards that were right at that transition point where, you know, pure walnut sapwood is really, really creamy. And of course, heartwood is dark brown. There is kind of that transition period where the the wood in between is more of like a khaki color um, and not uh, super light and creamy. And you may have gotten that, add to that the dust and stuff like that, and, and you 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 got snookered. So, uh, you know, it depends upon the specific lumber yard. Normally I don't find that's that difficult. I have a feeling you just got a board that was really, really dirty. <laughs> so, um, pay attention to the end grain more than anything. And I think you will, uh, you'll, you'll be better off. Yeah. You know, even if, if it's in its super rough state, sometimes once you know what to look for, it may be very subtle, but if you see the sapwood, a sapwood board next to the heartwood board, you actually can still sometimes see through that roughness that that's just got a little bit of a lighter back tone to it that if you clean that off, you know that there's sapwood sitting under there. Um, you you mentioned the end grain. Now we talked in the past about, uh, how some lumber yards might not be so friendly to you taking a block plane to a board. But one Mm -hmm. thing they might be a little bit more understanding about is if you say, look, I get a lot of sapwood when I buy these boards from you. I'd like to make sure I know what I have. Do you mind if I take a block plane to the end grain and just expose some of the end of that board? It's not going to hurt it. It's not going to make it look weird for anyone else who wants to buy it, but it will give me an informed, you know, allow me to make an informed buying decision. Can I do this? They might just let you, um, you know, if you you might. In fact, probably what they'll do 
is whip out a circular saw and cut a half inch off the end of the board. Yeah. Um, I've seen that happen a lot. Generally, if you go to a yard and you see a lot of the ends that are painted, that's a yard that's buying from a supplier. Um, they're not sawing their own material, which is, which is much more common. Um, and it's coming from someone who actually did the kiln drying. Um, but it's already dried. You know, that stuff was applied before it went into the kiln. And now that it's out of the kiln, it's really not serving that much purpose anymore. Mm. Um, you know, yeah, maybe it's slowing some of the moisture or whatever. But once you've kiln dried, you're, you're kind of where you need to be. So it's not like them cutting off that little painted end is going to be that big of a deal. And for that matter, if you have a block plane, do it. That would be a good way to do it. Yeah. The, the only other thing I'll say is... Um, you do, you can learn over time to see that stuff through the rough sawn material. Um, the best way I can think to describe this, you guys remember those magic eye posters where like there was some sort of 3D image yeah, and it yeah, was, yeah. you had to oh. kind of let your eyes go out of focus a little bit in mm -hmm. order to see it. Yes. That's kind of how you do it with rough lumber. You need to be able to see beyond the saw marks and the dirt and things like that. And if you kind of look beyond that stuff, you can actually see a fair amount of the wood grain. Yeah. Um, I, I do a lot of my choosing stock for furniture before I do any planing because I like to saw them by hand very, very close to final dimension before I do any planing because it's much easier to plane a board when it's narrower and short and you can cut out the cup or anything. But what you're you may run into at that point is suddenly you're playing it. You're like, Oh, I don't like this grain for whatever that usage is. So you get really good at reading the grain in the rough sawn state. Um, so that's the only other thing to say. It just takes practice. Um, build those skills and you won't have to worry about any of this stuff. Cool. All right. Uh, next question here we've got from Dustin. He says, hi guys, I'm interested in building a wooden gear clock soon. After seeing the process on Mark's recent video, I'm ready to dive in, uh, due to high shipping charges in Hawaii. Uh, poor you. My plywood selections are limited. <laughs> any possible problems with using... So well, I guess it depends on what part of Hawaii, right? Uh, any possible problems with using solid wood for the gears? I know wood movement will be a con in contention, uh, but how exact are these gear clocks if the wood moves a tiny fraction? And lastly, do you see box door ply as an option and just hope for the best? All right, so I don't build clocks, uh, but from what I have seen of it, it strikes me as something that is very important that those gears don't move um, or if there is movement that it's absolutely minimal. So I would advise, first of all, talk to someone who builds, clo builds clocks, uh, you know, routinely because you'll get some good uh, detailed information there. But just general woodworkers advice, it seems to me like solid wood would be a mistake because if those pieces do move at all, like I, I was watching uh, Rick in the video, how he would just kind of have to fine tune a few of the teeth as, as they'd start to catch. And he's really not removing much stock at all. And seasonal movement alone could cause that to happen. So unless you right. want uh, like a maintenance nightmare and a clock that runs better at some times of, of the year than it does at other times of the year, I would say plywood is going to be a must for, for a project like that. Now the box store ply varies in quality. It depends on, on your particular, excuse me, location, who their supplier is, but a lot of these gears are coming out of fairly thin stock. So some of the thinner stuff, when you cut it into small parts and you're really, you're talking about clock gears here, um, they could be fairly stable as long as it doesn't delaminate or anything. I don't see any reason why you couldn't get away with using that. 
It's usually the the big three quarter inch sheet of ply that we're putting into a bookcase or something that we start to notice these you know major movement issues from cheap plywood. So if you're cutting it down to small parts and the laminations look nice, um, always check you know count your laminations if you can. Try to get the stuff that has more laminations in it. Um, but you're going for probably quarter inch or half inch stock, so in that small format should be fairly stable. So especially if you haven't done this before. If that's what you can get, give it a shot. Try it. But I definitely would recommend um, the home store plywood over solid wood for something like that. Well, you know, the other thing to consider is maybe not a big box store, but go to like, since we're talking about a small piece here, go to something like a Michael's craft store that they have those little sheets, like 12 by 12. Yeah, little project pieces. Yeah, sorry. I was just verifying that there is a Michael's Craft Store in Hawaii. There's one in Honolulu. Okay. Um, and apparently when you log onto their webpage, it starts playing music. Hello. <laughs> sorry, Hello. so I just lost my train of thought because I was transported <laughs> back to the 1990s with a website that plays music. Um, so I've, I've bought some of that ply in the past for little projects, and it's good quality mm-hmm. stuff. You know, very, very stable and it's in smaller sheets. So that might be another option rather than going to like a Home Depot or whatever. Cool. Well, what about this option? I mean, we recently saw um, in Tom Fidgen's book, his most recent one, where he made his own plywoods. Why couldn't you do like, say, some local shop stuff if you have access to where you could? Because uh, I, mean, I can't imagine these clock pieces being that big that you couldn't maybe, say, make up your own little bit of plywood if you want to take it just that much further and customize it that much yeah, more. You'd imagine like a 4x4 four four sheet would give you all the parts you need for just about any of these uh, these clocks. Um, but I'll give you one reason not to do that, because that's a lot of damn work. Wait, some people <laughs> like a lot of damn work. <laughs> I know. Well, they're building their own clocks. Clearly, they do. Right. That's those damn woodworkers. <laughs> right. All right, Matt, I think you're up. All right. Hey, well, this question came in from Peter, and Peter says, I like to use recycled wood. Usually it is very weathered and gray, and I've discovered this is very wearing on my tools, especially the joiner and thicknesser. I don't have a very big bandsaw, and the pieces are usually very heavy and large. Current pieces are 60 inches long by 4 inches thick and 15 inches wide, and they're red gum. Now, these pieces have been outdoor steps for the past 30 years. Do you have any suggestions for taking off the outer half inch to three quarters inch without destroying my tools and my back? Uh, yes, my suggestion is to go with different wood. But <laughs> send that to us and uh, we'll take care yeah, of it for you. Exactly. No, but well, the one thing I was thinking is my first thought is to going to something. In fact, Shannon, you kind of mentioned it with the whole thing about the, the walnut and the, the previous question we just had. Take a, a stiff bristle brush and, and kind of go over that. Oftentimes you can dislodge a lot of that stuff that might actually be in there that eats up your blades quite easily. Now, I know this could be very taxing on your back given the size of these. I mean, what, 60 inches, that's five feet long. So eh, maybe you don't want to go that route. Um, I was doing a, a quick research on this, and some people were asking a similar question at some of the forums. And people were saying, why not use something like a power washer and, say, like a, a, a deck cleaner? And sure, you want to maybe do that ahead of time so that the wood will dry out enough, obviously, before you move forward. Mm-hmm. But again, it could dislodge enough of the loose material that would be eating up your blades. Uh, then if you maybe don't want to do something like that, you could always, say, use a belt sander or – Maybe a scrub plane. Again, a scrub plane is going to kind of hurt your back a little bit. But then again, in my opinion, a belt sander at full speed is going to kind of hurt your back a little. Uh, <laughs> yeah. My other options then are simply 
do you have a friend with a bigger bandsaw who doesn't mind running stuff like this through or say um, a, a thickness planer? They don't mind running stuff like this through or maybe even uh, a wide belt sander. Again, maybe you can find a local company or something that will gladly charge you for beating up their tools. Those might be some, some other options if you don't really want to do it yourself. I can tell you what my um, timber frame customers do. Um, they have those little portable planers, those hand um, yeah, 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 yeah. Planers. right. Because the issue is, you know, you're dealing with a 20 foot long six by six, you know, and, and <laughs> moving that thing around is not very easy to do. Um, so they go and, and they get, they get dirty and yes, the dirt and the grind will tear up those blades, but they're also not really meant to create a beautiful surface. Mm-hmm. Right. They're um, supposed to remove material. Yeah. So if it's a matter of, you know, taking off that dirt and grime and kind of getting it close, uh, and also removing that half inch to three quarter will also lighten the thing up a little bit. But yeah, those things, I used to have one and forgive me, I do not know what they run now, but it wasn't that expensive. Um, you can get them at, you know, Home Depot and Lowe's and they can't be that much. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, definitely a good use for that. Cause I think in the, the typical fine woodworking shop, it is hard to find a usage for something like that. But if you get source material like this, yeah, I'd rather nick one of those little blades than, uh, than get a big old nick in a 15 inch planer blade and have to have that, you know, replaced. And then you can do repaired. something like what we do where we have like the, uh, mark on the edge as it's leading in and you're like, okay, everything to the left of that mark, or no, yeah. everything to the right of that mark. Exactly. Right. That's a bad spot. And quick Google search of everything from the Bosch planer for $60. It looks like DeWalt is at the top end around 150. So they're not that bad. And if it's going to be used a lot, sounds like a, a good investment for him. Or you could just get one used too. Sweet. There you go. Get a hold of one of Shannon's clients. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm going to say there's a couple of clients I'd like to get a hold of. but gonna... <laughs> Anyways, though, Shannon, move on to your question before you get us in trouble. <laughs> so this comes from Mark. Um, and I'm going to Not me. probably, uh, yeah, Mark with a K, the, the improper spelling. Um, I may, I may need to, uh, get a little bit of input from you guys on this too. Uh, cause obviously my answer is going to go towards the hand tool side. Mark wants to join, um, uh, join two boards at 90 degrees using bridle joints. He's using eight quarter stock. So he anticipates the joints are going to be about, or about one and three quarter, um, or finished boards are going to be one and three quarter by one and three quarter or so. So we're talking about bridle joints that are going to be relatively deep, um, uh, he said, I've read on the internet the preferred method is to make these with a tenony jig on the table saw. The only problem is I don't have a table saw. What I do have is a router table, track saw, MFT, and a fair selection of hand tools. I'm comfortable making the tenon side with a coping sled on the router table. What I'm not sure uh, what to do is to make the mortise side, the, the female part of the joint. I could get a tenoning jig for the router table, but I'm a little hesitant to make a cut with almost two inches of bit exposed. Uh, and if I'm following that right, he'd have to run the board of vertically, vertically, yeah, which sounds really scary too. Mm-hmm. Um, I was also thinking that I could make a jig to put a clamping surface on the side of the MFT so that I could make the cut with a track saw. I'm worried about keeping the saw perfectly flat on the table since any deflection would be multiplied due to the depth of cut. Uh, I could also cut them by hand like a mortise, but this would be a lot more effort and I'm not sure that I could get good results without a few practice runs. What do you guys think the best way to make this with the tools I have would be? All right. Well, obviously, I'm going to slant towards the hand tool side and say, 
Um, yes, you might have to practice a little bit, but it also, I think, is a pretty key skill to have. So think of it as investment in your woodworking skill to learn to do this. Um, the other thing, he didn't say it, um, but a drill press can be a good option for this too. Uh, if you drill the base of that, that mortise, um, then you've got that kind of flat base to it. And it's a matter of, of, you know, sawing out the, the crap on either side of it and the, the, the bridle point pops right out. And that's how I do it by hand. I just use a, a brace and bit at the base of that and then saw out the rest in between. So th- there is the hand tool method, which I think a lot of times ends up being, well, in my opinion, the best way to do it. Because as he's laid out, some of these other options, uh, even with a tenoning jig on the table saw, I mean, you're still clamping that thing vertically and running a small surface area over. And to me, it can always get a little bit more unstable. Um, he doesn't actually say how long these pieces are. That's the problem. We don't know the dimension of the piece, which right. really impacts your, I mean, even if you're doing this by hand, you've got to figure out if it's really long, you've got to get a good you know, methodology for clamping that thing to the bench and, and mortising right. out that uh, bridle joint. I mean, the fact that he says he's comfortable making the tenon with a code mix on the router table, I mean, I can't imagine it's a super long piece in that case. And if yeah. it is, I'm not comfortable using a router table on a code mix sled. <laughs> um, the other, only other thing I can think of, and I've seen this before, where you can create an auxiliary table. I'm thinking for his uh, track saw, um, where the, the table itself has kind of long arms that come down underneath it and kind of clamp around the board. So you can put the board vertically, you can slide this jig over top and it kind of captures the end of the board. And um, then there's a slot, you know, you can move your track saw back and forth on top of it. So if you were to, first of all, find a way to clamp that board vertically very securely and then clamp the jig and the auxiliary table on top of that, then you've got a wider surface that you can run the track saw over and you can make those cuts. I've seen that done before. It does involve obviously making, you know, putting some effort into building this little jig and this little table. Um, And I'm not exactly sure how much you would use that ever again, but it it is a solution, Uh, which again brings me back to the idea that take some time, practice and learn to do it by hand and you won't have to do any of that stuff. Mm -hmm. Do you guys see any other way to do that? Um, I have two suggestions, two possible suggestions of very similar to what you just recommended with the extension platform uh, using the uh, circular saw. You could pretty easily take this board, you know, it's a piece of eight quarter. I could see him clamping it to the apron of his workbench, to the front end of the workbench. Clamp it so it's nice and secure and so that it's flush with the top of your workbench, like dead flush. Then you can clamp down your track saw uh, guide. Clamp that down to the workbench and just align it with the board where you need to make the cut. And as long as you're square, you don't necessarily need anything else in terms of jig building because your workbench is actually supporting uh, the lion's share of that track. And you'll be able to just go through and when it contacts your board, you're just going to plow through it and just keep inching it over um, and hog out the the material. Um, Depending on the saw you have, you still may have difficulty getting a full two inch depth in that cut. Uh, kind of just depends. I don't, I'm not sure if the 55 has that capacity. Um, the 75 certainly might, but I, I, I don't remember those numbers off the top of my head. Um, but that's the first thing. Immobilize the piece, clamp the crap out of it to your bench, make sure it's flush with the top of the bench and just make a few cuts to, to hog out the material that way. Um, the other thing that occurs to me with big pieces like this, it's one of those things where sometimes let's say you wanted to use an edge guide and a router bit to do it. And again, depth is going to be another issue here, but ultimately, uh, removing all that stock on that end grain is going to be a, a dicey sort of experience. So one thing you could do 
if you wanted to compromise here. You could go with uh, hogging the bulk out by hand, as you're suggesting, Shannon. But on the inside, especially if you're not real uh, comfortable with the hand tools, you may have trouble getting the inside of the bridle joint walls to be smooth and to, to fit the, uh, the male piece real well. So get as close as you can. And then set up your, uh, similarly to what I described for the track saw, um, immobilize it, get it in a position that you can easily run a edge guide and a router with your bit in position. And then now you should only have a little bit of material to clean up and get it down to a nice, you know, to your final dimension. It'll be nice and smooth, but you're not removing nearly as much stock. Uh, just yeah. keep in mind, keep in mind the side of the bit that you're addressing the wood from so that you don't have a, you know, sort of climb cutting event occur. Uh, but both of those I think are viable, assuming you can get the depth you need. You know, and the opposite of that would work too, where if you took a real light cut, starting with a power tool mm-hmm. to kind of lay in a guide for your handsaw. Right. Yeah. So say you only make a half inch cut with a router bit, um, and, and forgetting about the ways to address this, but if you can put like a half inch deep cut, the width of that mortise, the width of that interior bridle into the end of your board, well, now you've got a little wall there that you can press your handsaw against and you can work down from there. Nice. Hey, hybrid woodworking. You know, and so actually be a book on that. building on that, this reminds me of the, the technique that uh, Jamil Abraham um, put, I guess he published it in Popular Woodworking, for the condor tails on yeah. the workbench. You have to make this really deep, um, uh, what do you call it, the... Um, it would be, I guess, the two half pins for the tail to go into. Uh, but it's a very deep excavation of material into end grain. And the way that he actually did it was using a router to kind of make that first outline. And then he uses a pattern bit from there with the bearing guided pa- powder bit. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. Pattern bit uh, and keeps inching down to the full depth using the pattern bit. So, so there's another possible idea for you. All right, no shortage of ways. That's, that's the thing. Um, but this does highlight... Uh, one of my issues when people say, can, can I use a Festool system as my only system in the shop? Can I do everything with that? And I know people can make it happen. You can make it work, but this is one of the things that highlights some of the difficulty you might have. If all you have is that Festool gear, um, there are some operations that you're going to be up against the wall and have to come up with some creative solution, uh, because you don't necessarily have the domino or maybe you don't want to use a domino joint in that situation. You know, I, I just want to point out a resource, not so much another way to do this, but a really good book for anybody that's going to be doing anything by uh, power tools is, uh, and I've talked about this one before, Young Chan's Classic Joints with Power Tools. Uh-huh. In fact, as you guys were talking, I was going through here real quick to see what suggestions he had for a bridal joint. And really, he's he talks about the router table and the bandsaw and talks very much about how a router table is way too limiting to do that notch. And he does have a couple other a suggestion for how to do it with the table saw, but I think we pretty much kind of beat the living daylights out of that dead horse. (laughs) Die, horse, die. (laughs) All right. Uh, So if you want to leave us a review on iTunes, you can do that. Just go to the iTunes store, click on uh, find us, actually look for Wood Talk, click on ratings and reviews, and uh, you could send a little something, something to Matt. A little something, something, like a little uh, sweet nothing in his ear. God, I love sweet nothings. They are so delicious. Ziploc bag full of conversation hearts. But they always leave me feeling so empty afterwards. (laughs) All right. We'd like to thank Flynn 311 and Skipper, I guess is what that's supposed to say, uh, for their nice reviews. And see what Skipper had to say here. Six months ago, if you would have told me that I'd be listening to a talk show about wood, I'd laugh at you. Um, Yeah, I'm kind of reading this wrong. If you went further to explain that it was a talk show about wood, just moving things around randomly, whatever. 
um, I'd really be laughing. Nevertheless, here I am, and I'm hooked. I even have my wife listening to it on the way home from work, laughing at the hilarious jokes, both planned and unplanned. The witty comments each host makes adds to the dynamic. Uh, adds. Mm. <sighs> I'm so bad. And we would like to thank Skipper for that comment. Thank while you Lamar so much. Slaughters it. <laughs> What is up? This is the Sunday morning thing catching me. Anyway, rounds out a great podcast. I've learned so much about woodworking as I crammed all the past years into a couple of months. Listen to it. It's the best ever. Well, thank you very much, Skipper. We appreciate that. And sorry about butchering your review. (laughs) It was a wonderful review. I recommend you go visit it. Yeah, you should go read it. Don't listen to my version of it. Uh, Remember, today's show is sponsored by Festool at FestoolUSA.com. And, of course, we'd like to thank all of our donors recurring and uh, otherwise. Just go to WoodTalkShow.com. Look in the left-hand side uh, column there. There will be some links for uh, recurring donations and a one-time donation. We always appreciate that support. And don't forget to go to the Wood Whisperer store, TWWStore.com, and look for your Wood Talk t-shirt there. Very uh, fairly priced and a really nice quality t-shirt. You can walk around sporting the Wood Talk guys on your chest which is always oh. nice. I wow. do it That's all the time. <laughs> it is. It is. All right. And uh, Matt, how about you give them the contact info? We'll get out of here. All right, folks. Hey, your comment, question, suggestion. You have several different ways to contact us. Leave us a voicemail on Skype. Our username is woodtalkonline. Call our voicemail line at 623-242-5180. Email us at woodtalkonline at gmail.com or leave us a comment on our Wood Talk Facebook page. And if you're ever looking for the show notes or say the downloads from today's show or previous episodes, you're going to find all of them over at woodtalkshow.com. Awesome. And hey, by the way, Vic says hi. Oh, hey, Vic. Hi, Vic. Yeah, he said on Facebook, hey, tell him I said hi if you're still on. So there you go. Yeah. Well, What's you up, guys Vic? were talking. I noticed that he's listening to some Coltrane. He's drinking some coffee this early in the morning. So have, is he in the shop or what's going on? That's what it sounds like. I, I saw an earlier post. Let's rip on Vic a little bit. He apparently was doing some jointing and thickness planning. and forgot to turn on the uh, dust collector. <laughs> I saw he posted. That. Nice. Yeah, that's really that. tough for an OCD guy like him who like is afraid of dust. Well, you start to see the chips fly out of the cutter head and you're like, what is going on? And then you've got this beautiful clump that you now have to reach your hand up through the shoe and pull out. It's always fun. Preferably with it turned off, right? Uh, usually. Yeah. If you right. value your fingertips. This depends. Yeah. You know what I find interesting about this show is it is sponsored by Festool, and the last thing we did was basically say, yeah, you can't really run a shop with just Festool. (laughs) If there's one thing I'm I'm very good at is uh, crapping on our sponsors. (laughs) You know, honestly, the thing that I've found, and and not all sponsors are like this, but there are some companies, and I will tell you Powermatic, Clearview, Festool, companies that I've worked with, because typically they wouldn't sponsor me if they weren't like this, um, these companies are under Understanding that there it isn't just you know there's not just one way to do things and there's room for other opinions and the fact that we're honest uh, about these things i think makes us more valuable to the listener and that's why these companies want to sponsor us you know and we're not here to blow smoke up anyone's butt it's just this is what it is these are just our opinions and uh you know it is what it is yeah it's, it's always the there are limitations but when it comes to the limitations their list of limitations is the lesser very few limitations. They're very, very hard to find fault other than like the price when you're talking about festival stuff. So, um, all right. Well, I guess that uh, does it for our Sunday edition show, which you're listening to on probably on Tuesday. So we'll stop talking about Sunday. That's right. And okay. just to let you know, I had an amazing brunch in case you guys were wondering. Mm, I need some food now myself. All right. Well, have a great woodworking week and we'll catch you next time. Bye. See ya. Network. For more information about this and other shows, visit frogpants.com. 
Audio program so good, it's like you're there. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.